Let's start the show by talking about my sponsor, Paloma Verde, and their new website, PalomaVerdeCBD.com. Head over to PalomaVerdeCBD.com and check them out for all of your CBD needs. They've got the gummies, tinctures, the salves. So if you're needing anything to maybe chill you out, something to help you get mellowed out, something for your joint pain and stiffness, go over to PalomaVerdeCBD.com and give them a check out. Carlos and Vanessa are awesome people. They run a great company. And if you enter the promo code FACTS at checkout, you'll get 25% off your order. Plus, any order over $75, you get free shipping. So, I don't know what you're waiting for. Head over to PalomaVerdeCBD.com and check them out. Let's start the show. This episode will be completely taken out of context. Welcome to the Fact Check This Podcast. Right, fact check this podcast, and today I'm joined by Peter Quinones. Uh, Pete does Freeman Beyond the Wall. He works for the Libertarian Institute. He has a Substack uh, by any means necessary, and a whole bunch of other stuff. He's been on a whole bunch of shows and had a like great guests on his shows. If you are not already listening to Pete's stuff, you definitely should be. Pete, how you doing today? I'm doing great, man. How are you? I am excellent. So today I wanted to talk about a popular topic on Twitter that gets lots of uh, hate from everybody uh, to varying degrees. But I wanted to lay some ground rules in that, number one, we're not going to use that dreaded P word that gets everybody so triggered. And number two, we're not going to talk about any caucuses. Um, we're not going to talk about Praxian? <laughs> we're not going to talk about Praxianism? <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of things with labels that uh, the labels know, tend just... to fuck it all up and yeah they really do and and for no for no good reason like people immediately hear the label and they lose their shit without even listening to what either side has to say about it uh so i wanted to take it from that perspective and and something that i've also been looking at and thinking about a lot over the last year or so especially here in the last six to eight months is the journey behind stuff um like I got to talk with Tommy on year zero about our spiritual journeys. And at some point, um, Matt Erickson and I are going to talk about like our journeys in faith and, and religion and that kind of stuff. And so with you, I wanted to talk about for lack of a better way of putting it, the political journey, like how we've gotten from, like for me, I was a neocon in college, how we've gotten from where we started in our our politics of things to where we made it to say last year and then kind of where the course of the last 18 months has taken us since that point. Um, so if you don't mind, like kind of give a little bit of your political background, like where mm -hmm. you started out, where you, and, and how you've kind of shifted uh, throughout your life with, with your beliefs on that sort of thing. Well, in my like my grandmother my maternal grandmother's house growing up uh jfk was like the king yeah everyone talked about jfk um i would say that my family both sides of my family were democrats um but then when reagan came along my dad was really behind reagan i think he saw 
you know, he suffered through the Jimmy Carter years and gas shortages and stuff like that. And just as a reaction, it's like, well, let's get this guy in there and everything. And he knew he was an actor. He just didn't care. My dad was in the military and, you know, was educated enough in things that he, he knows it's all kind of an act. It's all, it's all a stage and it's all special interests. And he, he instilled that uh, from a young age, but he liked the fact that he thought that Reagan was um, changing people's minds and making people care more about the country um, as compared to how Ford and, um, and Carter were cared more about international. And so I grew up in basically in my formative years, it was just Ronald Reagan was King and everything. So um, I didn't, of course, it took years later for me to find out that, you know, he was an idiot, you know, he was total, you know, anti-gun and just terrible on so many things. But the, um, you know, I was, I guess I was a, like kind of social, like the like literal definition of the like socially liberal and fiscally conservative um, up to the Bush years. Um, somebody sat me down like in 1999 and explained to me that Bill Clinton had like the military had been deployed like eight times from like 1945 from like 1941 to uh, to 1992 and that Bill Clinton had deployed the military 44 times in eight years. And I was like, that's insane. Why, why is that even happening? Um, another thing that happened was in the nineties, somebody gave me a book on Thomas Jefferson and I don't even remember really what was in the book, but it made me think that did the kind of government that we have now, is that what was envisioned by the founders? And I immediately said, there's no way it's what was envisioned by the founders. So when George W. Bush ran in 2000 and he was talking about, let's take care of America. And if we have to deal with foreign countries uh, and everything, we can, um, you know, just trade with them and you know, have a humble foreign policy. I was like, oh, that makes sense. We, you know, we'll concentrate on home. So I voted for George W. Bush in 2000. And um, then in 2004, I voted for him again because I, <laughs> I sort of was developing a world, a political worldview at that point, but it was definitely inspired by what was going on in Afghanistan and the invasion in Iraq. And I knew there was something wrong with going into Iraq, but I couldn't figure it out. But I knew that John Kerry was just awful. I mean, and I mean, I, I even knew at that time he was a globalist and it didn't seem like George W. Bush was, but obviously he was obviously he was and is um and so after like 2004 2005 then they did the surge in iraq in 2005 2006 and i was reading about that and i was just like i'm out of politics i can't deal with this it's i knew a lot but i didn't know how to put it all together and then i don't even know why I watched the debates in 2007, the Republican debates. I don't know why. I mean, I literally was like out of like, 
like I don't care what happens. Blow the world up at at that point. So for me, uh, because I kind of uh, this is when I'm in college and and really uh, developing my my ideas around things. In 2004, I actually traveled to campaign for Bush. I I was all about it. Uh, I worked local campaigns for uh, state level senators and congresspeople in Kentucky where I'm from. I started a a college conservatives group. Uh, like I was all about it. And, and I'm, you know, as you're telling the story and moving up to like 2007, when I campaigned for Bush and then all of the, the surge and everything happened, I'm sitting there thinking there's no reason we should be in, a, in Iraq. Like maybe it's going to, maybe it's going to happen and it's going to happen fast and we'll just get out. And, and I kept thinking that that's, what's going to happen. Like, we're just going to, we're going to do it. It'll be over. We'll get out. And then that never happened. We never got out. We never got out. And, and as we never got out, I really got disenfranchised with, uh, and probably because I was about to get out of college and start in the workforce. And I was doing more research on the Republican party and, and everything else. I just started to really get disenfranchised with it. And so I basically just went, uh, for lack of a better term, I, I kind of went anarchist. Like, I just don't want anything to do with any of it. And the reason I, the reason I was watching the debates at the time is because my boss at that time um, was super hardcore into it. And that's all he wanted to talk about every day. So, like, if I'm going to have any kind of a, a discourse with my boss at my brand new job that I just started, you know, straight out of college, I got to at least pay some attention to it. And so that was what got me uh that was what got me into it and like no particular interest of my own just to to be able to have you know decent conversation with the people that I worked with and uh and then and then Ron Paul comes on and so so pick up from there yeah um I it may have been that my ex-wife wanted to watch it or something like that you know I mean I just don't remember but I'm I just sit in there and you know as someone who is from New York you know, I knew Giuliani um, I knew um, what's his name, Fred Thompson. I knew he was an actor. I'd seen him in so many movies and everything. I'm like, all right, I mean, at least this might be entertaining. And that guy, Ron, this guy I never heard of before, Ron Paul, just like starts going off and saying stuff. And I've always been a contrarian, just, you know, say stuff that pisses people off just to piss people off. And I'm like, man, he's got these people pissed. And it's like, and I'm thinking, and I just thought to myself, I'm like, there's no way this guy's just getting up there and lying. I mean, there's no way he's just going to get up there and start just spouting lies. And I started thinking to myself, everything he's saying is like, all of a sudden, it's like all these puzzle pieces that were everywhere in my head, all of a sudden formed and just went like this. And I went, oh, fuck. I said, this is the United States government's fault, just like it always is. Everything is. And they're responsible for it. And then I went down the rabbit hole of reading and I voted for Ron in the primaries. And that was the last vote I've made ever. I mean, local, even locally, I've never voted since then. And, um, well, and then talking about it being all the government's fault, then you move into 2008 with the, with the housing bubble exploding and the too big to fail bailouts. And, And like when all of, when all of that happened, that the, especially the bailouts, that was what really, really pushed me over the edge where I was like, I'm, I'm done with the Republican party. Like if, if the free market party is going to do 
these giant corporate bailouts like this, they don't stand for anything that they claim to. Like, I, I'm not, I, I can't, I can't get down with that anymore. And so I, I just completely, at that point, I completely moved on from politics entirely. Like Ron Paul put awesome ideas in my head, but when that kind of didn't go anywhere, you know, it was all still in the back of my head, but for me politically, I was done. Like I, I didn't want anything to do with the political right. side of things anymore. Yeah. And then, well, after I saw Ron, I started like going down a rabbit hole of reading books about politics and I started reading some Ayn Rand too. Um, but it wasn't until, you know, the friggin' 2008 crisis and everything went to hell um, that I was like, Hmm, I wonder is there anything out there to explain this? And um, I went on Mises and they were advertising that Tom Woods had wrote this book, Meltdown. And, I, and I'm like, okay, so let me find out. This, this is pretending to know what happened. So let me, um, let me pick this book up. And I've, I read it like in two days and then I read it again. And that was like it. That it was, I mean, I was like just, I mean, I'm not the greatest in the world on economics, but when it comes to basic economics, I'm really good on it. You know, I can teach people, I can have good conversations with people who don't understand it. And um, that was it. And then I realized that, you know, like everything was economics and everything was property. And from there, it was just, I mean, really, that's when I like checked out. That's when I was like, all right, I'm done with this. I'm the, I'm just going to read books. And I mean, I started reading like Eastern literature and I started, I mean, I started going all over the place. I'm like, oh, I used to study comparative religions. Let me take some couple of years, turned out to be four or five years to like study comparative religions and actually practice, um, do some practicing of Eastern religions. And then when um, 2000, 2015, 2016 rolled around and I'm like, Donald Trump against Hillary Clinton. Seriously? Okay. And um, so I had this old, I had a Twitter account from like 2009 that I had made in like 2009. And um, just because somebody local to me at the time in the Libertarian Party was like, um, just use it to DM me, you know, contact me. I'm always on Twitter and everything. I'm like, okay, fine. Twitter didn't make any sense to me at the time. I was always on Facebook and you know, I just took to Twitter and I just started like blasting memes all over the place and people started following me. And, um, you know, by year and a half later, I was like, what do I don't know. I have a lot of opinions about what's going on. And, um, so yeah, everyone else has started, everyone, well, everyone didn't have a podcast at that point, but there was a lot, there were podcasts out there and everything. So I'm like, eh, let me start a podcast and everything. And, um, yeah, I mean, I just stuck with it, you know, and was like, after about 14, 16, 17 episodes, I'm like, I'm tired of talking. So um, let me see if I can interview some people. And I started interviewing people and people were like, oh, you're a pretty good interviewer. I tuned in for that and everything. And then I saw the numbers start growing and growing and the downloads start growing. And um, the smartest thing I did was I decided, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to write a book and I'm real lazy. So I'm like, okay, how can I make this really easy? Okay. So I'm just going to do 31 pages. I'm going to write 31 pages and there's going to be a meme on one, on one side. And then my commentary on the meme here. And 
I was the first one to come up with that idea. Um, I, I don't remember a meme book before that. And as soon as I put it out, um, well, Scott Horton, I told Scott Horton, I was doing it. And he's like, well, send me over what you've done, what you're doing and everything. And he did some, and like immediately, like two minutes later, he's like, okay, you misspelled this here. You misspelled that there. And I'm like, just tell me if it's like the concept is okay. You don't have to kill me right off the bat and everything. And, um, He's like, no, I think the concept's good. He goes, just make sure it's right when you put it out. And um, it took a while, you know, I, it took a while just to format it because I was doing it all by myself and I was formatting it in Word. So it was just like, oh, this is a pain in the ass and everything. And I got it out and, you know, I got it on Amazon. And I got the Kindle version, which was, a, I had to use a comic book um comic book software for this because I couldn't find anything that would make a really good Kindle that would set it up for Kindle other than a comic, uh, other than a comic book app that was on uh, that was like just Mac only. And I got that out and then I got the book out and I got some sent to me and I'm like, this doesn't look half bad and everything. So I started advertising it and everything. And um, well, before that I asked Scott if he'd do like a forward for it. And yeah, he just wrote like a paragraph or two or something like that. And that was nice. So I could put, I put Scott's name on it and, you know, that was enough that, you know, Dave Smith asked me to come on his show and then, you know, my numbers started blowing up more. And then, um, you know, Tom, I was on Tom's show, started blowing up. Mark Claire started blowing up and, um, uh, and then people just started listening and I just went and talked about, I mean, I talked about different things. I mean, I think the podcast has definitely gotten more heterodox in the last 20 months, but I mean, I, I was doing things before talking to people on the far left, talking to, um, to people that not necessarily agreed with and some like bombastic kind of people that, you know, a lot of people wouldn't want to have on their show and everything and have them on. And, you know, it just started blowing up, but it didn't really blow up until COVID started. And I think I did my first COVID episode February 20th of last year. And that was with Monica Perez. And we, we understood that what they were going to do with this. We didn't think it was going to happen as fast as it, ha as it has, but right from the start, so I immediately started getting in touch with people. I wanted to talk to people who were of like mind in that. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I nearly doubled my, my audience in from like February to July of last year, because I was talking about the most important thing. And I was also seeking answers. And um, I talked about, I thought agorism was the answer. Like the only way out of this was going to be agorism. And um, I think agorism is vitally important, especially considering what a lot of economists are talking about. Um, but I've just been searching for answers. And something that I've learned since the P word has become popular is that when you start searching for practical answers within the world, or maybe even within the system, 
people remind you that you used to call yourself an anarchist real quick. They're real fast to remind you that you used to call that you made a documentary on anarchism. They're real, real quick because everything's got to be a gotcha. You know, while they're sitting in front of their computer, maybe making memes or um, you know, shit posting. Um, I'm over here trying to figure out how to raise money to get candidates elected locally who are friendly so we can use that as a way to beat back anything federal or state level. And that makes you a bad, you're not even an anarchist anymore. Now you're a statist. See that, 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 that part kind of rubs me the wrong way about the whole thing because I intend to run for a, a local position here uh, for our county council. It's a non, it's a nonpartisan race. Uh, so, and the, and the current incumbent is uh, widely disliked, but has no opposition. So, you know, it's, it's the perfect opportunity to, to cherry pick a spot to get a win. And well, don't talk about that now. Any specifics talk, talk to me when we're not recording. Okay. Well, okay. yeah, but you know, that's like, that's something that I'm thinking about. And when people are poo pooing the idea of, working within your local governments, it's like you're, mi- you're missing the point of how the entire world is structured. And, and like what you're talking about with the agorism, we have a, a nice garden. Uh, we've got goats. I'm going to start doing rabbits at some point. We've got chickens. Like, you know, we are trying to establish ourselves as completely uh, self-sustaining and, and basically not rely on grocery stores or you know stuff like that which i'm not sure what it's like where where you are but here we haven't had big supply chain uh issues like the stores are still mostly full um there's some like more niche stuff that you can't find readily available and it'll be in in a couple weeks and then you know it's there short term and if you're quick you can get it but it's not stuff that's like you know, life necessity type stuff. Like it's the, it's the luxury type stuff that that's not ready, readily accessible, but still like that, that just because that's our current situation here doesn't mean it's going to stay that way, you know? And, and I don't want to be, I don't ever want to be reliant on going to the grocery store and not being able to get the things that we as a family need, especially when I was raised on a farm and I know how to make like make bread from fucking wheat and scratch. Like I know how to actually do these things and process food and process a, a you know, process an animal and to, uh, to provide for ourselves. And so like, I really, I have really dug into the, the self, you know, being self-sufficient side of things from a personal aspect, but there are people who are in, you know, especially in bluer parts of the country that have an opportunity through local politics to actually make a meaningful change to their day-to-day life, that if you're not actively pursuing that, you're missing a huge opportunity to help yourself, help your family and help your community. Um, you know, know, and how do, how are people missing that? Like, why is that something that's suddenly, uh, uh, like a a bad thing to do? Because when you stick 
when you have a set of principles and an ideology and all an ideology is, is a set of principles um, by sticking to those principles and saying you won't break them, that basically gives you an excuse to not do anything. It just gives you an excuse to lose over and over again, but you're still the most principled loser out there. So you win. In your head, you've convinced yourself that you'd win. And you know, the longer you've been a libertarian, the longer that becomes okay because you become you know, used to losing. I mean, if you were a libertarian in, say, 2000, say you became a libertarian in 2000, see, couldn't stop the Afghanistan war. You, know, you watched the Afghanistan war and screamed at it, screamed at the clouds. Iraq screamed at the clouds. Somalia 2008 screamed at the clouds. Um, 2008 meltdown scream at the clouds, 2011 trillion dollars printed scream at the clouds, um, Syria scream at the clouds, 2016 insane election scream at the clouds, um, then COVID scream at the clouds, but you're always right. It's a great thing. You're always right. You're always, you can always say, I told you so. And maybe libertarians, you know, Lou Rockwell says that libertarians should never tire of saying, I told you so. And I agree with them 100%. But there comes a time when it's just like, I'm fucking sick of this shit. I'm fucking sick of losing. Okay, so who has a plan for how to win? Okay, Hans Hermann Hoppe. Maybe that's why so many libertarians, even Rothbardians, hate him. You know, it's like I've told this story before. I was in a group on Facebook and somebody had put up a poll and said, who's more statist? Murray Rothbard or Hans Hermann Hoppe. And I'm thinking, who the fuck are you? Who the fuck are you? And I mean, I know that's appeal to authority fallacy because I'm saying, you know, who are you to question these two authorities and everything? But still, if you're, it's like me, it's like, you know, I'm questioning all these things and it doesn't escape me that I'm like, I'm, I'm questioning people that are, that came before me who are clearly smarter than me, have higher IQs, much much more well-educated, you know, who the fuck am I? But still, some of those people, none of those people lived through the last 20 months. None of those people saw this. I mean, some of them, like Mises, lived through, fought in World War I, lived through, like, the rise of the Third Reich in a neighboring state to, to the Third Reich. And he wasn't an anarchist. That should tell you something. The guys who are anarchists grew up not having to worry about that kind of stuff. I'm I'm sorry. They didn't. (laughs) They they didn't have to worry about that. They didn't go to war. Right. They were academics. I'm not going to I'm not going to shit on Mises because he wasn't an anarchist. Maybe he saw the world. Maybe he was more realistic about the way he saw the world than we are. Maybe we are so coddled in the West, never had to, there's always food on the, gro- there's always food on the shelf in the grocery store. Well, some of that didn't happen in the last 20 months. Um, we've always had access to pretty much everything we want. Maybe some people are even utopian even now. So, I mean, I don't care what these people think anymore. I really don't. Yeah, and when I started talking like this, I lost listeners. You know, anyone who has a podcast and puts it on, on any kind of uh, platform where you can track your downloads, you know, you know when your downloads go down, they went down. 
Then when I started talking about hop is what must be done, they went right back up. Well, why I'm presenting solutions. And also there are other groups of people. I've learned that there are people out there who can still consider themselves to be ANCAPs or anarchists or whatever, who are like, well, we're not going to get it just by sitting on our ass. So maybe we have to do something about that. Yeah, that's- yeah, I mean, I just don't care. I mean, I don't really care anymore. You know, it's like I've taken so much shit over the past. I've had a fucking campaign against me over the past 48 hours because I made fun of somebody for for still posting taxation as theft memes. Yeah, taxation is still theft. But what the fuck are you doing to posting taxation as theft memes after the last 20 months? It's like the You should be posting inflation as theft memes. It's like the 2020 libertarian campaign, the presidential campaign that focused on all of the you know topics from the 90s and completely ignored COVID. So I I, I come from a relatively unique position, I guess. Well, I mean not all that unique. I was always aware of the Libertarian Party and uh you know, from from Ron Paul forward, while I was in my uh, anarchist phase and and kind of divorced from all politics, and like I had looked at the Libertarian Party, very you know I'd given it a good strong look and considered it, because whether we want to admit it or not, we all uh, sort of tend to gravitate towards groups of some sort. It's human nature. Um, like no, uh, that's something that. Tommy and I talked about with like community and stuff um, in, our, in your, you know, spirituality and, and everything is like, we all tend to group ourselves together where, whether we intend to or not, it, it's sort of a natural thing that happens for humans. Um, and then, so, you know, I'm looking into that stuff and I just never had any use for the libertarian party itself. Like I, I never saw anything that made me think, yeah, they, these are the people that I definitely want to be a, part of like i agree with philosophically what they have to say but it it just seemed like an unimpressive group so in 2020 i started actually get involved because here in indiana we had a really good uh governor candidate for the libertarian party and it's like okay like this guy is legit and he might actually in a year of covid where the republican governor has behaved like a democrat and locked the state down and enforced mandates and and other bullshit uh, and the, and the Democratic candidate doesn't think that the extremely lockdown or pro lockdown Republican governor went far enough with his lockdowns and mandates. And you've got a Libertarian candidate who's saying this is all bullshit, and I don't think we should do any of it. You should be free to make your own decision. Uh, it's like, hey, th- th- this might actually be the guy that could mount a good run uh, in this situation. So I joined. The Libertarian Party of Indiana. I joined LP National. I got behind it. I was like, "Yes, let's like let's do this. Let's let's actually take a run at this thing." And it was a lot of fun. And he got, I think he got like fourteen percent of the vote. Like I think he got the highest uh, total. Oh, that's, of, that's actually yeah, he, really impressive. He yeah. got like the highest total of any governor candidate for the Libertarian Party, like ever. I mean, he there were thirty-two counties in Indiana where he came in second. Uh, like if if something like that happened again in the 2022 secretary of state race uh, Wait, but who ended up winning the republican ended up winning okay because if they didn't 
and the libertarian would have stole the votes away. Yeah, I have a different I have a different theory about why what you do in that case. In that case, if you have a Republican governor who's acting like a Democrat, then you primary him with a populist. So you go at him with a with a populist, with a Trump populist or something like that. And you just primary the hell out of him. And um, you just say, <laughs> let him know that we're going to we're going to take advantage of this swell of this groundswell populism that's been happening for five, six years. And um, we'll knock your ass out of there unless you straighten up and fly right. You know, and if you have someone who's good enough as a populist, you could primary him and get him out of there. And, you know, but that seems that just seems so much more likely to happen than, you know, someone who's again, you know, someone who's just preaching. You know, no one's going to put a mask in your kid. No one's going to force a needle in your arm. No one's going to do this, that, everything. You can own whatever gun you want, um, you know, freedom, liberty, you know, taxation you know taxation is theft he doesn't have to say taxation is theft he could just say you shouldn't be taxed for anything that you're not paying for direct you know that, that you wouldn't pay for directly or something like that and um i mean last year i think any populist could have primary they could have done that against dewine here in um in ohio but they didn't they did you know i well last year i don't think I don't think last year was election year. So we'll have to see on the next election year with DeWine uh, what we're going to do to that freaking crony globalist prick. <laughs> and I think, while I think you're definitely right, the Republican Party of Indiana doesn't have the spine for anything like that. Uh, it's it's pretty, pretty sad state of affairs uh, coming from a, a strong Republican background and seeing how Indiana is. Uh, and apparently Will Fight has something that he's working on that uh is going to be big and really he's beneficial great. for indiana and I, i'm excited to like i'm excited to see what that is and, and how it works because because for this to being such a super red like i mean it is a red super majority hands down uh, like i said 32 counties the libertarian came in second and if that happens again in the secretary of state election in 2022 then uh the democrats lose ballot access in those counties like they they would have to petition wow. to be on the ballot in those counties they they won't be considered a major party anymore and you, you would think the republicans would almost work with the libertarians to get that done if they had any balls if they had any balls and so hopefully hopefully what will's got going on is going to be a good thing and, and maybe it'll start to turn turn the Republican party of Indiana in the right direction. Um, but you know, like last year, they just didn't have the will for it. And that like that still rubs me the wrong way is that, and Kentucky's the same way. I, I grew up in Kentucky. Um, you know, Kentucky has a very strong libertarian presence. They have Massey and Rand Paul and like for as good of a state as Kentucky is in terms of a lot of the ideas of Liberty they also have Mitch McConnell and they'll never vote him out because it is a spineless Republican party that has that state. And so that that's where I still kind of, I don't know if waffle is the right word, but I still feel like I kind of waffle on the political strategy side of stuff because I have been so entrenched in bad Republican States that don't have, that just don't have the testicular fortitude to actually do what is necessary to make legitimate change that lasts. 
in parts of the country where it would actually work and stick like that that part pisses me off so so I got involved with the Libertarian Party because I, I wanted to see something and I was excited about what was going on. And then and then the 2020 election came and went and now we see the direction that the world is going, especially the direction that uh, the country under the Biden administration is going. And for me, the, the Libertarian principles and ideas and ideals, while they have value they are losing practicality because we 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 are in a position where you you can't just and and you've said it multiple times you know you'll be the most principled motherfucker on the box car like you can't just stand by those principles like there has to come a point where action takes a greater precedent than holding to those holding fast to those ideals and and it, it feels like there's a lot of people who don't see that or maybe they just don't want to see that what, what's your well, I, mean, I think there are a lot of i think there are a lot of people who are comfortable they have really good jobs that they haven't lost i think there's a lot of people that still live at home i think there's a lot of people that just haven't been affected by covid like other people have and I think those people are just still sticking to their principles. I mean, I've talked about how libertarianism had no has no answer for tyranny. And people will say, well, that's because libertarianism is an ought. This is the way things ought to be. I mean, yeah. That's not okay. practical. <laughs> yeah. I mean, okay. So while you're preaching your ought, Tyranny is just growing all around you. And because it hasn't, you haven't experienced it yet. It hasn't affected you yet. What's going to happen? And then, you know, they'll be like, well, you know, if it gets to that point, you pick up guns. I'm like, no, you're not. You're not. Stop. You're lying. You're going to want someone else to pick up guns for you. You'll just be like every other statist. The, The word that they love so much, which is just, I mean, and I used to use so much, which is just so cringe. I mean, it's just so cringe, um, you know, because when they use it against you, when you're like, um, when you're like quoting Hans Hermann Hoppe and they're like, well, that's, that's statism. It's like, okay, whatever. Um, so if, I mean, if libertarianism is just an ought and there's no like practical way to get there, like, I mean, I, I recorded an episode yesterday that's going to release for Monday's episode with, um, Patrick Newman and Tho Bishop and Patrick Newman just wrote a book called cronyism um, about cronyism in early America. And he goes up through the Jacksonian period, the Andrew Jackson period. And when you study the Andrew Jackson period, it's like, it's insane. I mean, these guys really, they weren't libertarians, but man, they had some really libertarian ideas and they were fighting to get them, get them done. I mean, he hated central banks he just veto bills. I mean, just be like, nope, this ain't happened. This ain't happening. He's the only president that ever got the country out of debt. And we were like, okay, so let's do an episode on how we can, how we can pull out some examples of what they did and see if we could possibly use them today. And how would we do it? And, you know, immediately you think, well, I mean, it's just so much worse now. So how would you do it? The country's so much bigger, so much, so much more entrenched in, um, in corruption. How would you do it? 
And it's just like, well, let's look and see what they did in the past and see if we can pull something out of there. You know, and I know that that episode is going to be, there are going to be some people who are going to wet their pants. You know, I mean, they're going to wet their pants waiting for that episode because they're going to be so excited for it. And then there's going to be people who are going to wet their pants because it's like, they're not talking about anarchism. All right. I mean, that's great. I wrote it. If you want anarchism, I got a documentary you know, that I helped make. It's on, it's on Amazon Prime. I mean, go imagine what anarchism could be like. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm at the point where I just don't even, I don't even know what to say to people anymore. You know, it's like, and, and I've been criticized in the past for a lot of things. And sometimes I'll get upset at it and fight back and do stuff. But most of the time now, when I get criticized, I've been around long enough that I just don't even pay attention to it. You know, when you criticize some people now, like you, you're like, what, what, what are you doing? The world's like, the world's getting close to total friggin' tyranny. I mean, like literal globalism, like literal, I mean, anyone who cannot see how this is just such a path to one world government, you know, it's, it's like having, you know, like not the United Nations, but maybe the United States controlling everything and being responsible for everything. I mean, the United States can't be responsible for it here. It's going to be responsible for everything. How, I mean, how's that going to work? Right. And there's going to be so much outside influence. And it's just, and they don't, and like they're still posting taxationist theft memes and arguing over who created libertarian culture, which doesn't exist. I'm, I'm trying to figure out, I'm trying to figure out these rich kids, what it's going to take for them to, I mean, what has to happen in order for them to understand, to understand what's going, what's going on in the world? I mean, what does it take? I I don't get it. It, It's interesting. Uh, Just out of dumb happen chance, uh, we were talking about this at work the other day. I, I used to do a lot of project management and I worked with an engineer on a project uh, putting together a, it was a spout that would load barges for uh, a big grain elevator. And they bring this giant spout in and they sit it down. And I looked at it immediately and I said, this isn't going to work. And the engineer said, oh, no, no. And he started explaining to me why it would work. And all the, and I was like, yeah, that's cool. You've got a 30 inch spout that you're feeding off of a 36 inch belt. You're creating a choke point. It's not going to work. And he showed me all the math and he explained it all about why the flow rate going through this big spout was going to be fine and that it would handle it. And da, 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 da. Wonderful. It's like when you fire it up, you're still choking down a 36 inch belt into a 30 inch spout. You create a choke point. It's going to overflow and it's going to back up and overflow. So we put it on, we fire it up. It does exactly what I said it's going to do because you know, that's basic physics or it should be, but all of his, you know, mathematical equations for how it would work and how it was engineered said that it should work. That That's how I've kind of come to feel about libertarian principles is it's how it should work, but it ignores the real world application of like, this is, this is the thing that we're looking at. And this is what we've been dealing with for the last 20 months. And yeah. you're, you, you know, all of your you, ideals they don't apply to this situation anymore. They're not enough. You have to actually look at what's for real going on. And too many people live on fucking Twitter and don't actually see what's 
going on. I mean, there's a word, there's a phrase you said in there, real world. When I use that, I, I, that's, you're a statist. You're talking about the real world. What? Well, <laughs> I, I, that's kind of where I live. Right. That's where most of us tend to live. I I think we all live there. No matter, I mean, unless we're pretending in our minds that we don't, I I don't, I don't get it. I I don't get it. You know, I mean, it's like you're talking about in theory, you know, in theory, a freak, you know, an elephant can hang from a daffodil off of a cliff. You know, it's by its tail. In theory, that can happen. In reality, it's not going to happen. Um, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I'm trying to figure out if it's a problem with them, or if it's a problem with libertarianism in general. Is libertarianism a gaslighting ideology? Like to convince people that, I mean, I've heard people, okay, I've heard people on the, on the far right, what they call the dissident right. The alt-right doesn't exist. The, the, the alt-right was a, a LARP. I mean, it was just, it, I mean, it was, and they were all feds. I mean, it was just, they're all fucking feds. But I've heard people on the dissident right make the argument that libertarianism was designed by globalists to get a certain section and a very smart section of the population to be like, well, this is all about theory and I don't care about the real world and the real world can, anything can happen in the real world. And I'm not allowed to do anything, but I'll pick up guns at the end. If things get too bad, I mean, that's almost what it sounds like. It almost sounds like libertarianism was put was like QAnon. Okay, so what I said about QAnon was the worst thing about QAnon, besides the fact that everybody was retarded, was that it made people think that a savior, that Batman was coming. So they sat back, relaxed, and waited for Batman to show up, and they didn't do anything. They didn't stay vigilant on their own. They didn't do anything because Batman's coming, and he's going to save us. I mean, is... Is and Kapistan's not coming to save us. What libertarian is coming to save us? I mean, is there? I mean, I love Dave Smith like a brother. I mean, I I will defend him if I think he's wrong. I'll defend him. And I think that if he goes out there and he runs for president under the LP, that he'll make more libertarians. I think he'll make even more libertarians if he runs as a Republican. But that's another story. Um, but it's like. He's not Batman. He's not going to save us. I mean, unless there is some kind of plan, unless there is some kind of practical thing that we're doing that maybe, and the same thing can't be done everywhere. I really honestly think like the GOP Mises caucus can, the plans that we have can only be done in hyper red areas. But I think some of the things that the Mises caucus wants to do can take advantage of blue areas too. So I don't think it's a one-pronged plan. I just think that if we're not out there, if there isn't a plan to trust, (laughs) no, I mean, I'm trying to make fun of QAnon, but if the plan looks solid, 
And people think, okay, this could work. It's not going to work perfectly. Nothing ever works perfectly. You're going to run into setbacks. But if you're not out there doing something and you're just waiting, you're literally no better than those QAnon people who were waiting for Q to come save them. And these are people who make fun of Q, people who believed in, uh, believed in QAnon. But you're doing the same thing. Right. That's, that is that is interesting. Uh, like, I hadn't thought about... I hadn't, thought, I hadn't about thought about it before. I just, like, literally thought... I just literally put that together. It's like, yeah. That, like, that, like libertarians are like, Q, are like QAnon. They're like waiting, or like the, the QAnon people. They're waiting for someone to come and say, they're waiting for something to happen that's not going to happen unless they go and do it themselves. And too many of them are unwilling to go and do it themselves is the problem. They would rather talk because about Because you'll be theory. a statist if you do it, or you'll, you might fail. You might fail. I mean, they have, of, it's every excuse in the friggin' book. How many of the people on that side didn't actually get impacted by any of the things that have gone on over the last 20 months. Like I lost my job pretty much right out of the gate. Uh, Like it it wasn't a bad thing. I never was without work. Uh, But like I lost my primary full-time job almost immediately. And and it was actually my own fault. (laughs) Um, The company that I work for is a small company and it was very heavily automotive. And so when all of the, auto manufacturers in Detroit and everywhere else started shutting down. Um, I was the scheduler and I put together, like I ran all of the inventory and we had two months worth of inventory at a time when everything was getting shut down for two months. So there was no reason for us to continue working because we had way more product than we needed. Uh, So I had basically been too good at my job up to the point that uh, lockdown happened. And then I didn't have to I wasn't needed anymore because I had been too good at my job up to that point. But I mean, that's a good problem to have. And I'm still good friends with everybody that, you know, at that company. And uh, like, I miss it, but, but I actually came out better for it. I've made more money over the last year and a half than I had in the previous five years. Like I've been able to turn COVID into something that's profitable. Uh, Like how many people, and, and that's a big story across COVID is the people who were directly impacted by it and turned it into something have seemed to have come out on kind of our side of this, um, of seeing that there is a way forward beyond just talking about ideals and principles. How many of the ones who are still stuck in that didn't actually uh, either weren't impacted by it or the impact that it had on it on them was negative in a way that like they, they didn't, they didn't see the opportunity to turn it into a thing or they just didn't even try to turn it into a thing. They decided to take uh, Trump's bailout checks and Biden's bailout checks and live off of unemployment and let the government turn it back to them because the government's been taking it from for so long. So take it back from them you know and and not actually do anything to to move their own lives forward through this thing yeah i'm i don't know you know i when you start when you start down that road of trying to figure out why people aren't responding to this the same way we are 
you, you you start making assumptions that just sound like straw men and everything like that. You know, it's like, like I said earlier, I said, you know, they live at home, they're rich. They, it just didn't affect them. They lived in Florida, lived in Texas or something like that. Um, you know, it just didn't it affect them as hard. And, you know, I was in it, I was in Atlanta up until three months ago and it didn't affect me. The job that I had up until I, I left it in June, um, I was I, I had my hours cut at some at one point, especially when um, April and May of last year I had my hours cut. But that really wasn't a it wasn't a big deal for me because I don't really I don't have any debt and yeah I always keep my bills low. So um, so I just I don't know I, I'm. Honestly, I want to be the snarky asshole from the Bronx I am and be like, they're just, they live, they still live with their parents and they, you know, or they're rich or something like that. But I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, I I mean, Pareto, the Pareto principle is right. You know, 80% of the people do 20% and 20% 80. You know, and then I I just look at that as like 20% of the people who actually are claiming something are actually really serious about it. You know, I mean, the others are just, I mean, one of the things where I was discussing in a group chat today was that people, I lost my train of thought. Um, Yeah. Oh, that it's a small group. It's like, it's a neat, you know, it's a fringe thing so that you can be, it's easier for people to become more popular or stand out in, you know, a smaller group, which is why a lot of these people, I don't think a lot of these people don't want to like do work through the GOP or the DN or even the DNC because they're blood soaked monsters. Or I think they they just see that they won't be, they either won't have any influence or they'll, even if they do, they're just a small, they're just a, um, a small fish in a huge pond. But if they go into the Libertarian Party and they, you know, make some noise and sorry, yada yada, or libertarianism in general, libertarian Twitter or libertarian Facebook or whatever, you know, they, you know, put some put some content out there that catches people's eyes, and then it's like, hey, that's it's that person, that's him, that's her, it's amazing. Yeah, they're amazing. Love to be, love to see them at a libertarian event, you know, and have a drink with them. People do that to me all the time. And then they meet me at a libertarian event and they're like, oh, geez, he's just too fucking normal. Just, you know, <laughs> he's just way too normal. He's like normie and everything. Um, but I mean, that might be it. It just might be that they're just, or they're just contrarian in nature and libertarianism is contrarian and I mean, I don't know. It's kind of hard. You know, it, it really is. You can get into some serious straw man territory if you try to figure out what people are doing, because um, I mean, I've believe me, I'm well aware of, of the power of straw men when um, the term post-libertarian was used as a I'm sorry, I, I, we said we weren't going to say it. Broke rule um, number one. Yeah, broke world number one. Damn it! Um, when I used it for a a podcast title, and then it like stuck, and like people started using it and everything, and I'm like, eh, that's not. Uh, it's, it's really more of a moment than it is 
like an ideology or something that you're adapting, adopting, um, but people ran with it and then straw man after straw man had people with, you know, people that I respect, you know, who are way more important to the movement than me, straw manning me with it. And I'm just like, I'm not really understanding. I don't think you understand exactly what I'm talking about, you know? And then Stefan Kinsella like gets into my DMS on Twitter. He's like, what the hell's going on? (laughs) And I explained to him and he's like, what do you believe? And I explained to him exactly what I believe. He's like, that's what I thought. These people are idiots. And I'm like, he's like, well, why is it anybody? Why is it anybody saying what they believe? It's like, I think most of us are pissed at the point. We're just letting people like make assumptions because everybody just started making assumptions and nobody bothered to ask. Except Stefan Gonzalez. Thank you, Stefan Gonzalez. <laughs> that was that was something interesting with the whole thing when it first started. I wasn't, I don't know. I guess I've had an interesting perspective over the last year and a half in working for Buck and Counterflow, doing work for the Lions of Liberty, uh, doing some work for Josh Smith, uh, and then some other like just non-political shows. Uh, Car- Carlos and uh that that does los libertinos love carlos oh he's awesome but he's he's done some interviews with people that i abjectly do not agree with on anything that they have to say but he does excellent interviews and i love listening to him talk to them and i like listening to what they have to say even though yeah i may not agree with a single word that comes out of their mouth it's still an excellent conversation to listen to so I've, i've kind of been in a position where i've gotten to listen to a lot of these conversations happening and and even I've gotten to listen to a lot of them happen before they even go live, so where other people get to hear them. Um, but but so I get to formulate opinions before I see everybody else's opinions, and and I've gotten to hear a lot of different perspectives. That especially for the work that I do, I have to remove my objectivity from it and just listen to what's being said because I've got to put together good clips and I've got to, like I, I need to make a good. I need to make good stuff and I want the stuff to accurately represent whatever the guest is saying. So I have to remove any of my feelings and thoughts and and opinions and beliefs from the equation and just hear them. And I've really, I've really gotten to engage in a lot of these ideas on a, on a different level, I guess. And so, so when all the, the post libertarian stuff first started happening, I didn't really know where I landed on it and the way it was being played up and, and even to some degrees demonized. I was like, all right, like what the fuck is going on here? So I just started listening to stuff. And the more I listened to it, the more I I started to realize like, this isn't an, it's not an ideology. It is a, it is a personal growth of seeing that what has happened is not being solved by principles and ideals. There has to be some level of a practical application going forward, or it will never, (laughs) exactly, (laughs) or it will never change. And and there are too many people who are comfortable with it never changing. And and so that's kind of where I've. Until it's too late, until they, until in their words, it's time to take up guns. I mean, Sun Tzu clearly says if it, if, if you get to the point where you have to pick up guns, you've already lost. Right. It's just, that's logical. I mean, if 
If it gets to that point, you've basically allowed your enemy to just mobilize their troops, mobilize their ideology. I mean, brainwash people, um, propagandize people against you, against your thoughts, against who you are. You've and lost. we're seeing that. And especially the if time. they control the narrative, especially if they when they control all of the um, communication outlets where they get the narrative out there and people accept the narrative as gospel, even if they call it fake news. So it's really interesting from we, we early, I'm going to reference way back to the beginning of this conversation, but we had, you know, you and I both kind of seem to have had that point from Ron Paul to Trump where we're kind of removed from the political aspect of stuff. Well, during that time for me, I did a lot of reading. Uh, I read most of Isaac Asimov's written works. I read all of the Dune series. Um, I read I Asimov read- in middle school. I read, <laughs> my dad bought me the entire Asimov's written works for Christmas one year. Like, I've got an awesome dad. Uh, but I read Sun Tzu's Art of War and like a whole bunch of other stuff that's, that gets your mind working and thinking about stuff. So like you see things that you learn from, from the way those writers uh, tackle the problems of the world through fictional stories and you know if you look at asimov's works it tackles stuff that we're going through right now but it sets it in a futuristic setting you know and it makes this really uh lavish amazing story out of it but if you really dig down on the nuts and bolts of it it's talking about the shit that we're going through right now and and the way people behave and stuff like that and so it's uh, you know when when you take a lot of time to read Sun Tzu's Art of War, to read a lot of fiction and literature, and especially by like the classic type stuff, I think that shapes your your mentality. Whereas when people have only read Rothbard and Mises and spent there and, you know, maybe the, the extent of their fiction is is Rand. I, I, th- I think you get a pigeonholed view of, of the world um, that it's, that maybe it does make it hard for for people to I, I mean again we're like this is conjecture but like maybe maybe that has made it hard for people to move into what do we do about the problem like not just identifying the problem because libertarians are the best in in the world at identifying the problem but the solution is always well the free market will take care of it yeah but that's not a that's that's not a solution like that's not giving people something practical that they can put their hands on and so that's where that's where it has to go is you have to give people something that they can grab hold of uh, and say, okay, I can get behind that and we can make that work. And that, that's, I, th- I feel like that's the point that we've hit is now it's time to actually do something and stop fucking talking about it. Yeah. I think that people really need to start reading outside of libertarianism. Um, but, you know, people look for teachers and they look for, guidance. And one of the things that we were talking about, um, I was talking about with Tho and, and Patrick Newman yesterday, was looking for looking and raising up libertarian elites. And it's one of the things that one of the reasons why Hans Hermann Hoppe put together his property and freedom society was to do that, and to recognize them and to do that. And I think that I'm not saying that libertarian leaders now have failed but maybe they need to 
they need to take more of the libertarian elites that we have need to take a, a, a more approach of telling people to read more than, than um, just libertarianism. And I think a lot of them do. I just think people don't, you know, I, I mean, Tom Woods, I've heard Tom Woods talk about, you know, reading all sorts of different things and, you know, and I, I just assume people don't because it's just so much, it's so much safer to stay in libertarianism. You know, it's like when, when I started reading um, Lenin last year, and then I crossed over into reading, um, read the German ideology by Marx. It was, it was uncomfortable. Well, I thought it was going to be uncomfortable because I mean, I had read a little bit before, but I really wasn't, I didn't want to learn anything. I was just reading it to try to critique it. And I'm like, Okay, let's read to learn. So picked up Lenin's state, state and revolution. And you realize the dialectic that he's using is no different than Rothbard. Just di- diagnosis, um, where's the problem? How do we get there? What's the solution? And, you know, and always when it gets, I mean, there were some times he got to the solution where I was like, oh, that's pretty spot on. <laughs> especially when it got to how to deal with, especially when it got to the anarchists and the collapsitarians and people who just want to collapse the society. And that's when he started quoting Engels. And I was like, yeah, if you just collapse the society, it's, we're just going to get back what we have now and people are going to die. So it's like it's something, it has to be incrementalism. And that's what theoretically what communists to reach that communist um, stateless society that they always wanted, that workers paradise it, it was incremental. And I think we're, if we're going to improve our situation, it has to be incremental, but I don't think we should be expecting a utopia. I mean, thinking about a utopia is just, I think that's one of the, that's one of the problems the communists had was they were concentrating too much on the workers paradise and you know, it, Marx even called it a utopia. Lenin didn't. Lenin didn't call it that. Um, he didn't even call it a workers' paradise. But it takes. You should have an end goal, but if you're if you're looking past what's right in front of you, and you're ignoring what's right in front of you because you're paying too much attention to that end goal, things are going to pile up in front of you that are going to become insurmountable. And I think that we're seeing that now. I think we're we're getting to the breaking point where if people who believe in liberty, in individual liberty, in property rights, um, and I hate use I even hate using the word individual liberty anymore because uh, that term because we're not going to be able to do this alone. I mean, some people can you can go buy a buy a farm and be out rural, but if things get bad enough and they get towards total global homo, they're going to come and get you. I mean, they're, they're going to put you into their system. Um, so you have to fight. You have to find someone to fight with. And you know, by fighting, I mean, coming up with a plan to beat this back. And, you know, I, I don't know why, but I'm still an anarchist. I, I'm, I still live in Ancapistan in my head sometimes. And it's like, what would it be like to, God, what would it be like to be in a stateless society? And, oh, man. And then I, 
look at the last 20 months and I'm like, oh, we're not anywhere near. I mean, we, why are we even talking about that? I mean, we, we, we need to just, how do we get rid of the, the mandates? I mean, he's talking about like, okay, now companies with less than a hundred employees. How do you stop that? Okay. How does libertarianism stop that? Well, it doesn't because libertarianism is an ought. Okay. Then we need to abandon the whole ought and get to the is what is we going to do to stop this? Yeah, and they jump on hurdles quick too. Like they haven't even yeah. fully haven't even fully implemented the hundred plus mandate, and they're already talking about less than a hundred. Yeah. They're they're, yeah. they're hitting mean, these hurdles fast. Yeah, and it's and it's going to be one of those things where anyone who knows anything about the government knows that they don't have enough employees to to enforce this in all the country in all the companies in the country, but they're announcing it. The employees, the ones who are on the side that are COVID idiots are going to be begging for it. And then what do the companies do? Are they going to fire them, which brings heat, which now puts a light on them from federal if those people go and they start talking that, well, this company is not following the mandates and everything, or do they follow the overwhelming... I don't say overwhelming, but the majority of people who are probably work for companies who are against the mandates. No, they're they're going to be with the they're they're going to side with the loud scumbag idiots who will call OSHA and shine the light upon the company. So I mean it's really I feel bad for I feel bad for these companies because it's like literally I would if I owned a company, I would rather go out of business than implement these mandates. I would rather shut it down and burn the fucking thing to the ground. I'm talking about literally burn the building or whatever to the ground, just because fuck you. All good things fuck must one day be burnt you. to the ground for the insurance money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> get some Jewish lightning in there and bam, let's get that going. And, um, but I, I mean, there aren't many people who have, you know, are principal, you know, who are principled, you know, like that. And I don't think it's, it's not that I'm special or think I'm special. It's just, that's the way I was raised. I was raised. I'd rather fucking, if I'm going to lose, if I'm going to lose, if I'm going to go down in a fight like that, I'm going to freaking burn it all down. It's just the way I was taught. You know, I mean, I it literally is like, I hate the fact that, you know, when the, when the Iraqis were repelled from Kuwait, that they lit the oil fields on fire, but I kind of understand <laughs> You know, it's like, well, fuck you. You gave us the okay to invade Kuwait, and then you changed your minds, motherfucker. You know? Yeah, I, I definitely, uh, I definitely kind of take a scorched earth approach myself. With uh, if I'm going, I'm going as big and as seriously. As think I- about it. If you have a farm, you have, you you have land, you have all this stuff. If they were like going to take it from you. Like and you knew that there was nothing you could do about it. You'd probably burn it to the fucking ground so no one could use it, wouldn't you? Oh yeah. That's exactly the kind of fuck. That's exactly the kind of fucking attitude I'm having. And let me tell you something. Ain't a lot of libertarians that have that attitude. There are a lot, but they're not the most vocal. They're not going to say. They're not going to say that because they're smart enough to not want to bring and attention. You talk about the them. like the ones that uh, say when it gets to this point, that's when I'm willing to pick up a gun, and they're not willing to pick up a gun even then, 
even if it goes past that point, it doesn't matter what the point is. They're going to keep, you know, belaying it off to, to the, this next step of tyranny that then they'll be ready to fight back. Like that's not the way I was raised. Uh, and when I say that they can physically pick me up and carry me off of my job, but I will not be getting shit stuck in my nose and I will not be getting a jab. Like they can physically pick me up from my desk and carry me out, but I'm not going to quit and I'm not going to, to comply. And like, you know how, you know, this isn't about health. I get contacted by people every day who tell me I'm losing my job and I work remote from home. I've never even been into the office. I've never been to, I've never, I've only ever had conference calls with people. I've never been into a brick and mortar building and they're mandating it. That's why this, this isn't about health. That's right. how, you know, this isn't about health. And that's like, so for me, like my principle is I'm not going to do it. And it doesn't matter if I lose my job. That's like, I've made, I made peace with that. God, I don't remember. Uh, my wife and I actually had a conversation about it when a lot of this first stuff first started happening, especially because at the time we both worked for, for Lowe's and with them being a big, you know, national chain, uh, it seemed inevitable that they were going to do a man, a vaccine mandate. And we both agreed at that time, that, like as soon as it happens, we'll be done. Like we're not going to, we, we had already acknowledged that we were going to be jobless at that point. And we're cool with it. Like uh, even now my wife is fully expecting on January 4th that she is going to get fired. And you know, I wish more people had the actual balls to hold to the positions that they claim that they do on Twitter. And, and like, and I catch shit anytime I say that I hold this position, even from other libertarians who say that, Oh yeah, you won't, you won't do that. Like, this shit was ingrained in me from childhood. Like I, my dad was kind of a conspiracy theorist and I grew up on a farm and we learned how to hunt and garden and do all that shit. And I don't need this job. I just like it. And, and, and that's, that's kind of where my wife is too. And I wish, I wish that level of principle actually existed more amongst the ones who claim to be so principled. Yeah. I mean, I don't even know what to say anymore about that. I mean, it's just, I'm just gonna, at this point, take care right now. The only thing that's important is take care, taking care of me and mine. And then once, once I'm comfortable with that, then, and I am going to help. Um, we've decided with GOP Mises caucus that we're only right now, we're only going to work in the reddest of red areas. And where I live right now is not the reddest of red areas. Um, and I think the town is a little too big um, for the plans that we have, but we are making plans. There is a chance that in the spring, we're going to move to a county that is really small and re i mean not really small population wise really small i mean it's like literally it's like one of the biggest landmass counties in ohio and has like twelve thousand people nice. so then once that's done once we're settled and once we know that um you know we have things going and everything then see about possibly start investigating whether the, the GOP Mises caucus plan and the anti-tax is something that will work in that area that we think will work in that area that won't be a waste of people's money. Because, you know, when you're relying on donors money, you only want to um, do 
what you think is going to work. And, you know, so that's why, you know, right now we're just concentrating on our work with Buck Johnson in, Lock, in Lockhart, Texas. And um, we're going to, that's really a test case and we're going to run, run with it from there. And then um, people are going to want to see results. So we'll show them some results and then investigate other areas after that. That is, that is really awesome. And I, I mean, that's, that's what any movement that's going to promote freedom and liberty for, for people needs to have like practical application put to practice. And that, that's, that is awesome. Well, Pete, that's, I mean, I think we really covered everything that I kind of wanted to talk about. I really appreciate it. Um, Give all your plugs and everything, and then we'll, we'll call it a wrap. Uh, Free man beyond the wall podcast, libertarian Institute, dot org um by any means necessary the sub stack and um if you have amazon prime or if you have you know access to amazon amazon prime it's free it might be with amazon like three if you don't 399 or something like that uh, i made an i made a document well we made a documentary on anarchism and it's a really good documentary and um it doesn't only talk about it talks about everything from like mutual aid societies and mutualism and stuff like that. I mean, it's just, you know, it was some, it was a passion project that was made before um, it was shot before COVID released the week that the George Floyd riots um, were happening. And um, yeah, we're proud of it. And we, may not get there. We're not going to get there in my lifetime. We may not get there in your kid's lifetime, but maybe someday we'll get, you know, let's try and get something close to it at least. And um, that's going to take work. It's going to take more than calling people statists on Twitter and Facebook. Amen. And I I actually watched the uh, documentary with my son, like right after it came out. And uh, he was a little, I don't think he quite got it then, but I bet if we watched it now, he would he would get it a lot more. He's uh he's grown quite a bit in the last year. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, man. Uh, thanks again, Pete. Take care, Justin. You too.